So it's my real pleasure to introduce Daniel uh, O'Neill back to us. Dr. Daniel O'Neill, MD, MTH, is a physician theologian and managing editor of the Christian Journal for Global Health. And he's also the assistant clinical professor of family medicine at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. He holds a master's degree in theological studies from Bethel Seminary. He has served on health and development projects amongst impoverished or displaced populations. And he is a co-founder of Health for All Nations and author and co-editor of the book, All Creation Groans Toward a Theology of Disease and Global Health, which has just come out recently. So uh, Daniel, it's a real pleasure to have you back here again on ICMDA webinars. And we have great interest in, in uh, hearing you unlock this intriguing title, Aristotle to Jesus, Human Flourishing. Uh, over to you, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Uh, well, it's good to be with you all again. I appreciate the opportunity uh, to be able to delve into the subject. Uh, I, I hope it is an intriguing subject and it was intriguing when I looked into the concept of human flourishing. Um, I, I work with the interfaith group uh, at the World Bank, uh, the Faith Initiative, uh, and uh, working with a multi-faith context, uh, uh, we are trying to come to terms with uh, helping uh, human flourishing. Um, and then of course, from as a Christian, having a Christian distinction gives me an interest in this subject. So I'm glad to share it with you today. Well, I come to you from uh, uh, near the University of Connecticut here in the United States uh, uh, as a Christian Journal for Global Health, the managing editor. Um, I think that it, uh, in terms of flourishing, the, the individual flourishing, uh, which uh, doctors tend to deal with mostly, uh, can be, cannot be seen in isolation from public flourishing or what we call the common good. And we know that human flourishing, as we've come to realize, cannot be seen in isolation from planetary flourishing, that as the planet goes, so goes the human race. And none of these can be fully acquired, I would uh, submit uh, in the absence of cosmic flourishing, which is the flourishing between heaven and earth. Now, flourishing as a concept uh, has Aristotelian, uh, and that's part of the title, but also other uh, transcultural roots and has been informed and enhanced by the Judeo-Christian theology over the years and has in increasingly been adopted in many modern secular professional disciplines. And we'll look into some of those it can be observed to be a consistent universal goal throughout human history. This paper and this, this presentation uh, proposes that the, the preservation and rediscovery of this principle of flourishing as a common good is a reflection of God's intentions for creation, redemption, and consummation, uh, the main theological er categories. That healing serves as divinely directed process by which flourishing is actually obtained. But we must move beyond uh, the popular Aristotelian concept of flourishing. Uh, and that healing, I propose, would serve as a goal of the people of God, not just health professionals, but the whole church, uh, to pursue the source of human flourishing and planetary flourishing, which is the supremacy of Christ. So if we can accomplish that, uh, then um, I'd be quite happy for today's visit with you. So 
flourishing as Aristotle's universal and primordial driving force. The concept of human flourishing has its roots in the universal human experience. I quote a lot of, uh, from Pennington, uh, and I give the reference at the end, uh, and he's a theologian that has discussed this concept of human flourishing quite well. It's really been the driving force behind every philosophy and religion known to humanity. In human societies, religions, academic disciplines, and in every ethno-linguistic people group, long even before the full revelation of the Messiah in people groups, God has embedded this longing for flourishing. Now, human flourishing was a central concept of the ancient Greek moral philosophy, forming a basis from which many modern concepts derive their approaches, especially in the West. Aristotle highlighted the concept of flourishing, which he called eudaimonia, in his Nicomachean Ethics, which he wrote in 350 BCE, uh, as the highest human good and as an end in itself. Obtaining this preferred state of being required virtue or excellence and the character traits that human beings need in order to live at their best. The function of human beings consists in, activate, uh, uh, in activity of the rational part of the soul, according to Aristotle, in the context of society, that is polis, in accordance with relational virtue. And these activities uh, providing and sharing the common goods, such as friends, wealth, and power, which when lacking will undermine flourishing for the whole. Now, Aristotle's uh, eudaimonic ideal cohered with the monotheistic Jewish, Christian, and Islamic thought. In fact, it's thought that uh, God saw, uh, providentially prepared uh, the Greco-Roman world to receive the full revelation of the gospel uh, through his influence uh, over these uh, uh, philosophers. So it was consistent with the monotheistic views now, Eastern religions uh, have historically presented different ends, uh, but with the, with the global spread of Christianity and these other monotheistic faiths and interfaith dialogue, there's been some adaptation to accommodate the concept of flourishing and even to enhance the idea of flourishing. For example, in the Buddhist tradition, the goal of enlightenment or nirvana is quite distinct from Aristotelian concepts of flourishing, but modern efforts to bring those together, to syncretize, has evolved in what Sigali calls eudaimonic enlightenment. The Four Noble Truths, for example, of the Buddhist faith, uh, to know and then be released from suffering, to abandon adverse attachments and practice inner peace, have maintained an emphasis on ecological harmony, virtue, and transcendent spiritual life. So even in the Eastern religions like Buddhism, they've seen some value in the concepts of flourishing. Now, Middleton maintains that a common feature of all the major religions, Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, and Judaism, is, quote, teaching drawing attention to the possibility of improved well-being as a result of renouncing pleasures or sin uh, and attachments to mundane habits. So this common ground of the wisdom of flourishing through suffering 
is consistent with and recognized uh, even in studies about the post-traumatic growth is more effective for well-being than insulating against suffering or pursuing immediate self-gratification. But what is the Christian distinction for the attainment and promotion of well-being? Well, the Bible storyline gives a concept of flourishing expressed clearly in the Hebrew and Greek scriptures as God's intention for the world, creating a consistent and redemptive storyline of the whole Bible. Uh, the the pre-lapsarian or the pre-fall state of being in the Garden of Eden was marked by harmonious relationships between the creator, the good creation, and the quote, very good crowning glory of that creation, male and female human beings who had intimate, shameless relations with their creator and with each other. They enjoyed ecological harmony with the created order over whom they were to have thoughtful, God-directed dominion. And we read that in Genesis 1, 28 through 31, what we call the creation mandate. Through, but through the rebellion of created moral agents, uh, both spiritual, that is angelic and material human beings, that is rebellion against God's ordering of the state of flourishing. The primordial state of being was impaired, corrupting the very fabric of the social, ecological, biological, and material world leading to universal constraints in human flourishing and degrees of planetary degradation. Yet, the, prom the prophetic promise of a seed to establish justice and peace in Genesis 3.15, that is the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, continued through a particular people, that is Israel, in the form of covenantal universal promises to bless the nations, Genesis 12. So when Israel entered the promised land at Sechem, they were instructed to proclaim curses on Mount Ebal and blessings on Mount Gerizim, that is Deuteronomy 11. These blessings were contingent on their obedience to the life-promoting law that was given to Moses, both promises and warnings. Sechem was the city between the two mountains. Um, and it was a city of promise, a city of refuge, a city of commitment, of justice, of renewal, of worship, and of flourishing. Unfortunately, these preferable states were compromised by various uh, problems. There was gender-based violence on the part of the local Hivite chieftain, and then the blood vengeance by the sons of Jacob. In Genesis, you can read about that in Genesis 34. This is just one example of how flourishing is contrasted with languishing in the whole biblical narrative. And the key role of human actions or inactions, which can lead to either flourishing or languishing, and the juxtaposition, the contrast between curses and blessings highlights the reality of both in this, in this world. God's expressed desire was that his people choose life, Deuteronomy 30, 19. And he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone, Ezekiel 18, 32. To Israel, he was the God who heals you, Yahweh Rapha. 
and the storied history of Israel, subject to slavery and foreign domination, famine and plague uh, was at times delivered from captivity and exile throughout history. They maintain an expectation of a righteous king, the righteous king that would be the prophet, priest, healer, and king. Uh, to lead a new humanity restored to the land with a view toward renewal of, of a universal and sustainable flourishing state of being, which is expressed in Isaiah. This is the Bible's deep storyline. It begins and ends with human and planetary flourishing, right relationships, and perfect relationship with God. We study the, the Hebrew and Greek words woven throughout the canon of scripture, which creates a textual backdrop to the story of God's redeeming work to restore this human flourishing and humanity's responsibility to align with this goal. They are peace, happiness, blessedness, wholeness, and even holiness are being set apart. Jesus the Messiah embodied and enabled these preferable states through his divine presence and healing work. Pennington writes, as the arbiter of God's revelation, and indeed as the final word of God himself, Jesus is able to finally explain, model, and affect the true state of human flourishing, both now and in the future in God's coming kingdom. So you can imagine when Jesus came along 300 years after Aristotle, uh, many of the pieces fell together in the, uh, in the Mediterranean world as the gospel spread. The eschatological vision of Isaiah in chapters 50, 65 and 66 expressed the blessed hope of the renewal, purging, and flourishing of the new heavens and earth. Consistent with the ancient prophetic visions, John's first century vision on the island of Patmos uh, of the new heavens and earth in Revelation 21 and 22 is likewise marked by a reconciled universal representation of every ethno-linguistic people group along with remnants of all 12 tribes of Israel, experiencing international peace, focused worship on the lamb, sustainable nutrition, pure living water, and the light of truth, and sharing of humanity's diverse cultural splendor. Curses removed, pain and tears resolved, and access once again to the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing or therapy of the nations. So when we get into the first, second and fifth centuries CE, the patristic liter literature saw human flourishing as grounded in God's creative intent for material creation, including nature and material goods that are to be shared for common use and for the common good, to be a means of distributive justice with a view toward eschatological restored fullness. Gregory of Nazanius uh, integrated God's justice, human equality, and philanthropia together, which bind both vertical and horizontal relationships. Both justice and equality manifest in philanthropia as a mirror or icon of the divine in, human in, in humanity for human flourishing. Therefore, he urges, as far as you can, support nature honor the original freedom, 
respect yourself, cover the shame of our race, assist those with sickness and aid those with need. When we get to Augustine of Hippo, he emphasized that virtue consists in enjoying and clinging to what is eternal and spiritual for its own sake and as the ultimate good and using what is temporal and material well without loving or clinging to it. The highest good uh, to Augustine, which he also called eudomania, like Aristotle, was finding rest in God and practicing the double love of God and neighbor. It was really to manifest what Augustine called a certain form of life in the world. When we get to Thomas Aquinas by the 13th century, um, he drew heavily from Aristotelian concepts of form as final cause and identified the highest end of human life being human flourishing, eudomania, which he called an integrated life, which the enlivened body habituated through teaching and practice to desire what is life-giving and to shun what is harmful and that contributes to the flourishing of the community of which is it a part. So again, it's not just for the self, but for the community. So to Aquinas, happiness or beatitudo is obtained through what he called embodied actualized dispositions or habits, which contribute to flourishing, which he called virtues. By contrast, the opposite of that, just like on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerasim, there are habits which destroy or harm which he called vices. The acquisition of virtue and the shunning of vices and the right ordering of, desired, of, de of our desires leads to the ultimate form of virtue, which is love, which he called caritas. So bodily health, he called sanitas, remained an important but a limited good, which served the highest good the highest good meaning communal human flourishing in relation to the highest good, which is God. No happiness or flourishing is complete or fulfilled short of God. And no disposition of the body is ultimately life-giving if it does not aid the journey to God. And no virtue is complete in itself, if not directed by divinely infused charity of supernatural, towards supernatural ends. When we get to the <clears throat> Reformations and Renaissance, uh, I'll hover a bit on the Enlightenment. Now in the 18th century, the Enlightenment brought more of an anthropocentric turn after emerging from the Middle Ages, averting our attention away from transcendent and divine, but it had a, a benefit of enhancing our development of ways and means to promote human flourishing through science, technology, the arts, and political movements. The Judeo-Christian background of Western civilization with its biblical storyline of human dignity, human moral responsibility, blessings and curses, as I mentioned, and divine cosmic redemption form a deep, even if subconscious basis to promote lasting human flourishing. So this background mixed with enlightenment movements to enhance human well-being through human ingenuity and inquiry, enhanced by the Protestant Reformation 
of the 16th century and, the, and at the same time, the Catholic Counter-Reformation created a deep wellspring from which human flourishing could be derived, um, though actualizing this potential was not without its challenges. Uh, when humanism and materialism eclipsed the divine ordering, uh, these failed non-theistic utopian ideologies and materialist ideologies constrained freedom and extinguished human lives. Um, when the Bible was used um, also to justify dehumanizing systems of slavery, uh, we realized that good exegesis of the scripture was necessary to promote human flourishing. So there was a real learning curve throughout uh, these centuries. Some of the modern adaptations, uh, I'll just touch on briefly. In the modern world, there are innumerable examples of paradigms, programs, and policies which draw from the, this collective wellspring of Western culture and with, uh, to enhance human flourishing. Um, most of these have tied their perspectives explicitly to the Aristotelian concept of eudaimonia. Um, and uh, I share some examples in the paper. Um, the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals um, discuss eudonomic well-being um, and are embraced broadly by the international community and most nation states. And of course, there are strong ethical and um, moral elements to these global goals. We also know that in economics, uh, in microeconomics, um, I'm sorry, in macroeconomics, there's a movement away from happiness economics where measures of subjective or hedonic happiness are used uh, or have been giving way to uh, a broader economics of flourishing based on Aristotle's concept of eudaimonia, which is measured again by virtues, not by pleasures. And even in microeconomics, there's a recent emphasis on work, virtue, and flourishing. Work itself is an intrinsic good, and uh, businesses are important agents of social development and workplaces, uh, um, places to foster virtue. Also in the field of psychology, um, the leaders of psych positive psychology have moved away from subjective self-related, self I'm self-rated happiness to eudonomic uh, approaches to address well-being based on virtue. In the field of global health, um, uh, there are many paradigms uh, about philosophical and religious underpinnings of uh, addressing human needs throughout the world. And even in the arts and humanities, there's movements toward uh, Udama, uh, using arts and humanities toward, uh, toward human flourishing, the way Aristotle looked at it. And in ecology, <clears throat> Uh, eco-social flourishing has been proposed instead of natural or sustainable or even ecological paradigms for a more complete understanding of the intimate connection humans have with nature and with ecosystems. And of course, there's movements within the Christian community uh, to emphasize the idea of creation care. <clears throat> and uh, the encouraging thing is that the globalization of Christianity and the interaction of Western culture with various world religions has enhanced the wellspring of ideas that actualize flourishing. E uh, each diverse culture has something to contribute toward the praxis of flourishing. 
um, though each culture also has uh, struggles with its own inhibitors of flourishing. Salvation becomes is becoming more understood in the terms that Howard Snyder uses of creation healed. And uh, that sometimes resonates with healthcare providers. Um, Pennington writes, his saving work in us entails properly pursuing life and flourishing and being instruments of the same to others, which is part of our own flourishing and healing. Human flourishing in the context of human beings embedded in a complex ecology of relationships with each other, with spirit agents, with the material world and with the living God is a central part of salvation and redemption in the biblical storyline. Pennington writes, God's saving work, his redemptive activity, his goal for humanity and all creation is precisely this, that we flourish fully, even as he himself flourishes perfectly, completely, and with overflowing abundance. And I propose that, uh, though it's not popular in theological circus circles, I think healing is uh, a pr the process which leads to flourishing, and it's a paradigm that I think fits most closely with God's intentions for our work in the world and his work in the world to actualize human flourishing and planetary flourishing. Precisely because we are languishing and incapable of meeting these challenges apart from divine intervention. And I, I think I quote Isaiah 59 and John 15, 5. Healing is needed because of the impairments and corruptions which exist among the nations and in the fabric of creation. And we all know this in our own experiences, healthcare providers. Full flourishing is only possible when languishing is removed, but the divine work toward that fullness has already begun. And it's a called for collaboration or synergy, which is the Greek word in the text in Romans 8.28, synergy that uh, God works through us and works with us to redeem uh, the fallen creation. And on the continuum of human history toward this preferable state, what was lost in Eden has begun to be regained. And this in pockets of redemptive communities throughout the world. The real-time actualization of peace, happiness, blessedness, wholeness, healing, as well as holiness or uh, Kadesh is the ongoing and deeply sustainable work of God in and through the people he calls his own. So finally, um, the world religions will strive to approximate states of human flourishing. Philosophers seek paradigms for truth and the good life and secular humanists uh, seek uh, well-being through their own means and te technologies. Global health workers address complex health challenges toward healing the nations. Economists pursue collective well-being for developing nations. And ecological movements pursue well-being for a planet at risk. All of these efforts are indications of a deep human need in the midst of the universal experience of languishing to strive toward experiencing flourishing in all its fullness. So I, I submit that the preservation and rediscovery of the principle of flourishing as a common good is a timeless 
transcultural reflection of God's intentions for creation, redemption, and consummation. Each effort that I mentioned is beneficial in some respects, and even more so as they grasp a universal shared eudaimonic perspective. Yet, none of these efforts by themselves or even collectively are able to attain the fullness of this longing, given the scope and magnitude of the languishing, without the one who came to give the whole world, indeed all of creation, life, and life abundantly, John 10.10. 10. The world may make its common goal Aristotle's concept of eudaimonia, but without realizing the deeper Christian understanding of the divine source of the state of well-being, something very vital is missing in our approaches. As a widely respected philosopher, Aristotle gets a lot of attention and scholarship for flourishing uh, in the past 10 years, but the incarnate perfection of the God of well-being is barely mentioned. Uh, Kinghorn is correct. I give the reference for Kinghorn in, in my references. He says, human flourishing is ultimately realized only in the act active doxological rest in the beatific vision of God. Now, eudomania, by definition, means having a good indwelling spirit. In the Genesis record, the, the spirit, the ruach of God, was the promogenitor of the good creation, Genesis 1-2. And God's breath of life, uh, the mishpach hayim, made human beings living beings, in Genesis 2-7. Likewise, in, this, in our epic of history, in this uh, epic of history, it is the spirit, the pneuma, which gives life, John 6, 63. There are many spirits in the world, but one life-giving spirit. Distinguishing the spirits of this age with the spirit of God is a good starting point for the flourishing life all humanity needs. So we must not, we must not fail to recognize that there is a thief, an evil spirit of this age who foments languishing, the quote, enemy who has done this, uh, and that the, the reason for the Son of Man was to destroy his destructive works, 1 John 3, 8. The Messiah came to establish a kingdom of true peace, shared prosperity, relational harmony, wholeness, ecological thriving, and ultimately healing of the totality of human need. In the sacrificial atonement of the Lamb of God, the cause of this languishing, the sins of the world, can be taken away, John 1, 29. The curse of languishing is lifted, Revelation 22, 3. Virtue can actually become possible, not by our own power, but by his imputed righteousness. And new levels of fullness of true human flourishing and planetary flourishing, healing in all its fullness, will be realized among all nations, both now and forever. And of course, working toward that goal is not to labor in vain. This most recent uh, book I've been reading by Miroslav Volf uh, called Flourishing. He says, the right kind of love is the right kind of God um, in light of the transcendent glory into a theater of joy. There's some more references and glad to uh, have some further discussion. Appreciate your time and attention. Thank you, Peter. Thanks very much, uh, Daniel. That, that was an amazing uh, 
uh, coverage of, of, of a huge number of issues and of time scales as well. So, so thank you for bringing us to that. So, uh, Daniel, coming to to the questions, and I think the first question came in quite early, so perhaps predated some of what you were saying about the Old Testament. But um, Simon Clift, who's a a, a doctor in the uh, UK, works in occupational health, big interest in, in overseas mission. He says, while accepting the validity of the idea of God being providentially at work through philosophers like Aristotle, surely there's plenty of rich ideas of human flourishing with the Old Testament, for example, in the Pentateuch and wisdom teaching, including the Psalms. I think you've covered a lot of that in your talk already, particularly with regard to the Pentateuch. Uh, uh, and the prophetic literature as well. But would you like to comment at all about um, the contribution of the wisdom teaching, including the Psalms, to this whole idea of eudaimonia uh, and flourishing? Yeah, thank you, Simon. Um, well, I'd, I'd say, Peter, that the, um, uh, yeah, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God is, uh, is, is, is massive in the Old uh, Testament, especially, you know, there's, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The writings, uh, you know, including uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, um, Proverbs, and uh, the Psalms. Um, I think there's there's a great deal uh, throughout that, and I didn't really cover that uh, because of the time constraints, obviously. Uh, but yeah, there's plenty there's plenty in there about confession, about uh, 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 the the depth. Uh, in, they, they, the the Hebrews talked about the bone marrow being kind of the source of healing and health within the body. Um, and there's a, a relational uh, issues in terms of the wisdom literature. Um, so it is very relational. It's very uh, uh, tangible. Uh, it's very uh, creation centered. Um, I, I think sometimes the New Testament writers uh, have been accused of being a little too platonic in their dualisms. Um, but I think as we've discovered more, the biblical, the Hebrew biblical understanding interpretation of the Pentateuch and the law of the prophets and the writings, we've, uh, I think, arrived more in Christianity at a, at a, 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 a more tangible, uh, you know, body centered and creation centered idea of uh, human flourishing that's relational and not just ethereal or philosophical. Um, now, uh, thanks very much. I was interested in your comments about um, how the Greek philosophers, in a sense, laid part of the foundation for the coming of the, of the gospel. And of course, God is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations. And it's significant that, that Christ was born at, at a time when the Roman Empire was dominant, but hugely influenced by Greek patterns of thought and philosophy and so on. To, to what extent do you think that uh, that Greek philosophy was uh, foundational in providing the right context for the arrival of Christ and, and the gospel in the first century, and particularly this idea of, of eudaimonia and flourishing? Um, well, I think, uh, in, uh, I think Paul writes in Galatians, when the time had fully come, uh, Christ was born of woman, uh, born under the law. Uh, so there was a, you know, the 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 Fertile Crescent was a, a trade center. Um, 
there was the the Pax Romana had a lot of influence over um, the spread of Christianity in the Greco-Roman world, the Hellenization um, of the uh, of the that area where Jesus grew up. I mean, some it's not proven in the Bible, but it's possible that Jesus in in, in Galilee uh, near the Decapolis had had access to the Greek philosophers, um, so he could have. Uh, not that he needed to be influenced by them. He was the son of man. So, but in a sense, uh, he contextualized it possibly. Uh, and I, I do think it's providential that um, uh, that the timing and the location of the, the coming of the son of man uh, has led to the, the, the success and the spread of Christianity. Um, and, and also, I think it under, it undermines, it underlines the importance of the universal nature of human desire, which is to flourish. Um, and so whether it's in, um, whether it's, um, <clears throat> you know, whether it's Eastern religions or it's Confucians, I, Confucius idea or the Buddhist idea, uh, it, it's natural in human beings because we're created in God's image and likeness to desire flourishing. And so God meets that desire through the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, um, uh, I think it's all part of the plan, if you will, and the way God contextualizes it for us and comes down and dwells with us. And part of his way of tabernacling with us in the incarnation is to speak in common language and speak in common understanding of, of our human experience. Mm. There's, there's a tension, isn't there, between, on the one hand, uh, you know, the, the reality of suffering in the Christian life, that the, the tension between the now and the not yet, the idea that you know there's so much of the blessing is to come, and um, and this idea of the prosperity gospel, if you like, that that God's come to bless us if we if we live in the right way, expressing the right virtues. Could, could you could you just talk a little bit about the line between human flourishing on the one hand and prosperity gospel on the other? Yeah, I, I think if um, so, the the Greek philosophers, there was the Epicureans, which were uh, a philosophy that was common at the time, and even mentioned by the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, 18. Um, they were uh, about the pleasure principle. They're about you know seeking pleasure here and now, and uh, but I think the Christians move more toward the Stoic uh, concerns of. Um, uh, reason and discipline of the flesh um, and peace in the midst of storm. Uh, they had this idea of logos, the, the word of God, reason. Uh, so I think that health and wealth gospel um, is a bit of an aberration because it's, it's, uh, it's seeking more comfort and safety and pleasure now, as opposed to deferred gratification or uh, more the stoic idea of higher levels of virtue, uh, um, uh, um, you know, self self denial, uh, giving of the self for the for the sake of others, uh, the uh, the concept of suffering, and through suffering, um, uh, finding the joy of uh, of service. And so, um, I think we have to be careful with the idea of human flourishing, reducing it to something that's just about here and now, uh, because we have the eschatological vision the fullness that comes about in the eschaton. And so holding that out as the promise of 
not just eternal life, but a flourishing life, um, uh, both now and, and then, here and not yet. No, that, that's helpful. Can, can you just unpack a little bit more this idea of the tension between the now and the not yet, and to what extent um, human flourishing can be enjoyed in this world? At, at all, all the levels you've talked about, whether it's uh, you know, individual, public, planetary, cosmic, or whatever, um, as opposed to what we wait for in the new heaven and the and the new earth, what what expectations should we we have? Well, I think if if we see human flourishing, that can if we draw the connections between what is and what is to come, uh, it might create a, a an anticipation of a fullness. So that when we do experience some degree of human flourishing in this life, uh, we can do, we can sort of, we have two, two opportunities. We can praise God for it in, in gratitude, um, or we can expect it or demand it as a human right. Um, and, you know, we can, um, um, uh, we can surrender um, uh, some of our own uh, pleasures and flourishing, even for the sake of others, um, because we have this concept of the imago dei, the concept of human dignity for all peoples and all all developmental levels, um, and um, uh, <clears throat> um, so there probably is a, a degree of tension. Um, I think the Stoics were a little too stoic, and in fact, uh, Aquinas. Um, it did not it had some debate with the Stoics because he did feel that uh, you can be impassioned, both weeping with those who weep and 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 rejoicing with those who rejoice, in the affective side of of life. Um, but it's that balance between, um, you know, the the suffering enduring. You know, who hopes for what he already has. Uh, but when you hope for it, you know, then you have faith, and that's that's where faith is. Um, created by God and, and, and gives us eternal hope despite suffering and, and, uh, and even because of it. The suffering leads us to a longing for human flourishing. So it, it makes us cry out to God, you know, rescue me. That's, you know, you talk about the Psalms, you know, uh, where are you, God? You know, the laments uh, are God's absence uh, and this creates a longing and then a fulfillment uh, comes in that hope. Thank you. But just getting on to this question of, of evangelism and the Gospels, Cynthia Hale's raising this um, and, and talking about your involvement in the faith initiative. You know, you've been working with people of other faiths and, and dialoguing with them on these issues and also picking up your comments about how ideas of human flourishing based on any other religion or ideology are going to be incomplete because they're lacking the, 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 the only one who can really bring uh, true human flourishing at all these levels that uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So uh, Cynthia is asking, to what extent do people you relate to in the faith initiative show a positive response when you share your conclusions about the centrality and necessity of Christ as the only way to God and to human flourishing. I, I, I guess we're asking here, is, is the whole idea of human flourishing a useful bridge to evangelism? Is it common ground that we could use 
to uh, communicate the gospel more effectively with unbelievers. I, th I think it is. That's why uh, there's a big, th this is more of an apologetic. So when you're dealing with interfaith circles, uh, you know, Miroslav's, Miroslav Volv's book, Flourishing, um, the subtitle, the subtitle is uh, why we need religion in a globalized world. So globalization has uh, allowed us to interact with one another. And, and it, thank you, Cynthia. She's a good old fr fr good friend. Uh, um, so uh, yeah, I, I think it is, it can be an opportunity to share, uh, to share the, the uniqueness of Christ and the necessity of Christ in a multi-faith context. Um, you know, uh, it's it's not easy to to, uh, to to share that uniqueness of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ, but at the same time, um, uh, we can speak and use common terminology and find common ground with people of other faiths or no faith at all, people of goodwill, uh, and in that context, then they ask for the hope that's within us, and we share that with seasoned with salt and uh, and and gentleness so that, uh, but we don't compromise on the supremacy of Christ, but at the same time, uh, we can find common ground to work together toward poverty alleviation and helping the, the poor and suffering. Thank you. You, you, you talked a little about the, uh, about uh, flourishing within the global Christian community being enhanced by uh, the rich diversity of different cultures within the global church and how each culture brings its own contribution to, to building up the Christian community. C could you unpack that a little for us in terms of specific examples of how you've seen that working over the last few centuries as we, you know, as we approach ever closer that beautiful vision of Revelation seven of people from every nation gathered around the throne. You know, as 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 you've been alluding to also in, mm. in Isaiah sixty five well, and sixty six. Yeah. Well, in my travels, conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. So my, in my travels in uh, Central South America, West Africa, North India, Middle East, with the Syrian refugee crisis, and second with Arab Christians and and uh, uh, Christians of Muslim background, etc. I've realized that uh, the global spread of Christianity has enhanced our collective understanding, not just of what the church should be, but also who God is. So I think as, as God reveals himself to humanity, if we just cage uh, the revelation in our own culture, we miss something. We have blind spots. And I wrote a whole paper, and I can share the paper link uh, in Missiology, an international review, on what the global church has taught me about health and healing. So I think the globalization of the church has allowed us to see the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of God, uh, the fullness and the, uh, the, the beauty uh, of God, in a sense, uh, manifest in all these different cultures. And I think in Revelation, the, the, the wealth of the nations is brought into uh, the, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, all that cultural splendor is uh, not just not just beautiful and diverse, but also, uh, you know, uh, a full reflection of of uh, of God uh, through the the imprint of the image of God in every tribe, tongue, and nation and culture. And so, but it takes listening. It and part of my paper is that I've I've had to 
unpack my own baggage of uh, Western platonic dualism and and uh, uh, and and try to listen intently to holism from Africa to the integration in the Eastern uh, Christianity as it's emerged, and uh, and I think also the messianic movement of of God of the people of uh, Israel to God, their interpretation of this text of Scripture and especially the the, the Tanakh has has helped uh, the global church to understand the way God revealed himself, especially in the Old Testament and the New, because they were Jewish as well. Yeah, I, th I think one of the things we really love about being involved in ICMDA is the incredible rich diversity we have uh, amongst the different national movements and in the field worker team with uh, 63 field workers from 45 different countries. It's uh, extraordinary the insight and the blessing one gets from being part of that community. It, we're very conscious at the moment that there's a huge amount of global concern about the planet, around climate change, about human activity fueling damage to the planet. Now, some, some might say even an, an exclusive focus to the extent of perhaps not focusing so much on the individual and public and cosmic dimensions of flourishing that you've, you've talked about. Um, what do we need to be learning from this as Christians and, and how can we think about a planetary flourishing from a Christian worldview perspective and, and how does it differ from, from what we're getting from a more secular perspective? I, I appreciate that's a huge question, but, but uh, just value your insights on, on that. Well, I think uh, first we, I think we have to sort of um, realize that God's movement is toward uniting heaven and earth and renewing all of creation and not just flat out destroying it. Um, you know, uh, I think that, uh, you know, he, he said he, he came to reconcile all things to himself. Um, and we are, even our own bodies, you know, it says in Romans 8, you know, um, our bodies long and groan for creation. That's the title of our book, uh, All Creation Groans. You know, uh, we're longing for the redemption of our bodies, but also the redemption of all of nature. You know, look at Isaiah, the, the lamb lies down with the, the, the lion and the lamb lie down together. Um, so there is, uh, we, we can't, uh, but yet we can't have so much of focus on the planet that we don't realize well, first of all, the, the trap is one, we're gonna, we can do it on our own through technology. Number two, that um, it's all about the material and not about the, the spiritual. And that, at number three is that um, um, that we, uh, uh, we have um, more of a non, see, I, part of it is that we can't lose the idea that human beings are the crowning glory of the creation of God. Uh, we're not there to exploit the planet. We're to we're to tend it, and the way the degree to which we are stewards of that tending is a degree to which we we flourish as well as the planet. Um, so I think you know Christians are understanding that more now, uh, but at the same time we can't fall into the trap of of thinking human beings are equivalent to worms or uh, have the same value. Uh, so there has to be an ordering of value, which I think God does in the creation narrative. Um, but still part of the mission of God is, is uh, making this planet habitable, but it's only through Christ that it can be fully purged and redeemed. 
And just finally, we're, we're living in a world now, particularly in the West, where most of our colleagues in medicine are coming from an atheistic or secular perspective. And yet, as you've, as you've argued, are still interested in human flourishing, but see it um, very much in terms of technology rather than virtue, if, if, if you like. Um, could you, what's, to what extent, this is another question that's been raised here, should the significant changes in medical science and healthcare provision, the astonishing changes we've seen in the past century be considered as part of, as evidence of human flourishing, as, as God's work, if, if you like, uh, but balanced against an exclusive focus on technological solutions for what are really much more complex, multi-layered problems. Yeah, I mean, I think all is gift. So if 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 we, within our human uh, Imago Dei stewardship, uh, find solutions to problems, let's say cancer research or just vaccination against COVID-19 to protect lives, we should receive that as a gift and, and um, think of that as a way of allowing human beings to participate and align with God's desire for human flourishing. At the same time, our technologies, if we rely upon them, uh, can, can become objects of idolatry uh, and that we can become, we can lose ourselves in being, the, being enthralled with our own uh, prowess, our own technologies to the point where, um, we think God is irrelevant or we, we don't trust in God or we look for technical solutions to moral problems. Um, and, more, and more and more people are realizing the degree uh, that human flourishing requires morality. Mm. And Christian, the Christian worldview brings that front and center that we live in a moral universe, that God is a moral agent and that he requires uh, us to, to follow certain ways in order to flourish. And, and I think that we're, we're in a great position right now as Christians to, to, not, to not, be, uh, uh, not apologize for our faith, but to say, we have an incredible solution at the very depths of human relationships and morality and uh, transcendence that, uh, that we don't need to be embarrassed about and that we can, we can proclaim among the nations with boldness and uh, you know, adapt some things like, like uh, Aristotle's ideas to say, um, you know, uh, what we what we have is 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 really needed for the world. Daniel, thank you so much. We've, it's been intriguing listening to you speak and also to your responses to the questions. And there are questions, as usual, that we didn't get to. Um, and but you've given us a lot to think about and chew on uh, as we as we go on. So it just remains to me really to to thank uh, all of you for coming. To to thank. Uh, you, Daniel, particularly for, for your talk and uh, insights and to the, the Lord himself, who is our only source of true and full human flourishing. So God bless you all. Look forward to seeing you again soon.